Hello everyone, this is your host Akil Jabbar and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about where should you launch your next startup in Europe and why. Today we have our guest Dom Einhorn joining us. Uh, so welcome Don, super excited to have you on the SaaS District show today. If for those in our audience, uh, can you share a little bit details about your personal background, past ventures and how you developed your experience and expertise as a serial entrepreneur, investor and now innovator? Well, thank you very much for having me, Akil, on the show. Uh, pleasure is all mine. Yes, I, my name is Dom Einhorn. I am in France, talking to you from the southwest of France. I'm originally half French, half German, uh, an Alsatian from the northeast of France. In my younger years, expatriated myself from France in 1993 to the California shores, where I had a number of failures and a few successes that made up for those failures. I was a very early on a digital marketing entrepreneur way before it was fashionable being one. Uh, I started building websites when people didn't know what a website was. Uh, and I had a few larger successes and exits uh, in the US prior to moving back to France uh, roughly three years ago. Uh, I started as a digital media entrepreneur. I've slowly become over the last six to eight years an angel investor. And the reason why I decided to become an angel investor is because I realized that there was a gap, which is something I call the expectation gap between startup entrepreneurs looking for financing and angel investors willing to provide financing to the right type of company. Mm -hmm. Usually the way I describe it is that investors listen to AM while startup entrepreneurs looking for funding broadcast on FM. Hence the yeah. gap. Uh, very early on, I learned that lesson when I was 23 years old. Uh, I scaled the business uh, pretty rapidly. I needed to look for some outside funding. Uh, I was sitting in front of an astute investor, uh, pitched my deal, uh, lost him very quickly because he didn't understand what I was talking about. And then it was his time to speak. And uh, he asked me some very astute questions as well, which I didn't understand. You know, hence that gap. I think fast forward 28 years today, we're still seeing very much the same problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so for example, when I sit down with engineers before they actually integrate Unicorn, uh, very often their eyes glaze over when I ask them some financial questions or about you know what stage they're in on the, on the fundraising side and vice versa, right? If they get too deep into their AI, into big data, et cetera, you know, I, get, I tend to get lost very quickly as well. <laughs> so it's been a very interesting journey, but I think that uh, you know, I, there's a lot of value today in being a former entrepreneur turned angel investor because you have the ability of sitting on both sides of the table and understanding what you know what each party's requirements are. Exactly. So angel investor, how many startups have you said you've invested to date? Because I know we mentioned before the call, you know, companies are, are based locally, you guys incubate them, but then you also have remote uh, companies you're working with as well. And you know, what's your typical check size when you're investing in a, in a company at that stage? I'd say low end 25K US, mm -hmm. uh, high end quarter million. That's kind of okay. our sweet spot. Uh, nice. So we're, we're, we're definitely coming in on this, mostly on the seed side. Yeah. Uh, rarely on Series A, never beyond Series A. Okay. So we are calculated risk takers because what we do also, aside from uh, writing checks, I'm usually first money in, either directly as a 
personally money in or as a cohort with some angel, other angel investors that tend to follow our deal flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but the money in is by, by no means the, the only thing that we provide. So we provide a full ecosystem and also a large dose of media for equity. Uh, you know, for example, we rank number one for 5,000 keywords in the app store in 17 different languages. Hmm. So we have a direct and measurable impact on customer acquisition, specifically for mobile first clients. Nice. Uh, and we have the ability to scale very, very rapidly across any domain on an industry and on a language agnostic basis. Nice. Um, you know, from entrepreneur to kind of moving to founding your company, Unicorn, what was the opportunity you saw? I mean, you saw that there was that gap, which said the AM, FM, um, and then you started to, leave, you know, instead of going out and building another company or joining a startup or building your next, what was the reason you decided to start the incubator? Yeah, I think one thing leading to another, I think that the main reason why I decided to launch the incubator, number one, and in France, number two, is because I realized that, yes, this gap is still not being filled today and that there is a dire need for what we're providing in the markets, in the marketplace, that you have on one side a tremendous amount of uh, typically younger startup entrepreneurs that are not mature enough to really pitch what it is that they have to the investment community. And the other side, you have a more mature investor who is typically not young enough to understand what it is they're looking for, right? So it's hard to do this this effort by yourself. So we've surrounded ourselves with a team of specialists, uh, including uh, accountants, uh, CFAs, attorneys uh, that specialize in the startup ecosystem, both in France and outside of France. And then behind the unicorn machine, we have a whole team of graphic designers, developers, market, digital marketers, uh, social media mavens, et cetera, et cetera, who can take this concept and actually scale it. So I think overall, the idea was to actually create an ecosystem that we believe does not exist in that sense. Mm-hmm. And it's also an ecosystem that provides a hands-on full-service approach where others typically scratch on the surface and kind of like hope for the best. And that's for yeah. us, it's just not good enough. Mm, so you guys give the full suite uh, solution for, for the founders. Um, what, what's the typical criteria? Someone's coming to you and they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to be a founder. I want to be a, or maybe I'm at the early stage. I have an idea. Um, you said, you know, you only got up until seed stage series A. Can you tell us about what's your, what's your investment criteria look like? What are you looking for? And what are you avoiding when you're investing in a startup? Yeah, very good questions. Uh, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, our in-house CFA who have been working with for upwards of 20 years vets the deal from a financial perspective and then decides whether to pass it on to me personally uh, or to someone else or to nobody at all, depending on how it checks out. Assuming it comes across my desk, the first thing I look for is our ability to accelerate what's already in motion. So we only work with startups that have at least a proof of concept, right? Be it a product or a service. And if they're looking to raise more money, show us at least that you've been able to convince your grandmother to write you a check, no matter how (laughs) small, right? Right, right. So you have some kind of like, you know, litmus tests there, some early checks. Obviously, you want to make sure that the founding team is uh, who you want them to be. You want to make sure there is product market fit. Uh, Typically, the way we assess product market fit in our space is merely by volume of searches compared to what is currently on the market and whether or not the demand that's already looking for that specific product or service is actually validated by keyword volume, specifically in the app app store. 
right? Okay, so this is not Google. You're looking at apps only specifically. Not necessarily. It could be Google search volume. It could be App Store search volume, depending on what the model dictates. You know, if it's a cross-platform model, we will look at both. If it's only mobile, we're looking at that. If it's only iOS, no Android yet, we're starting with that. In other words, instead of building something in the hopes that it will come, we typically know they're coming and that's the reason why we're building it, right? Mm. So when we iterate as well, very often, that's obviously something I would recommend everybody here to do is because what we see very often are teams of developers building a product or service in isolation, mm-hmm. not knowing that it's been built already or that someone else is building it. Sure. Now, clearly, no, we don't have a crystal ball. You don't know whether teams are doing, but have you, you at least need to make sure that what you're trying to build and putting your effort towards hasn't been done already, which quite often, you know, be honest, so, random... Random search, 10, 15 seconds, you already find a competitor. And then they kind of like roll their eyes and say, oh, it's not exactly like what we're doing. You know, you, you know the talk. So you're looking for companies that have zero competition? Is that what you're saying? Something I'm not innovative? saying zero competition. What I'm, what mm-hmm. I'm saying is that because if we're looking back and I've been around the block now for 28 years in this space, and I'd say when I was an entrepreneur, it was expensive to launch a digital business. In 1998, yeah. to, if you wanted to launch an e-commerce website, you needed to have an Oracle server license, which put you back $25,000 to $32,000 US. In 1999, my bandwidth bill every month uh, used 800 times less bandwidth than today, and I paid $8,000 a month just for bandwidth back then. Right. right? So right. unless you raised a quarter million, a half a million, $1 million, you had no point being in business because your burn rate was way too high. Right. Fast forward 28 years, all those costs have literally been eliminated. So you can launch a business instantly with your smartphone if you want to do so. But what a lot of people tend to forget is because of this rapid democratization and demonetization of this process, mm-hmm. anyone can become your competitor. Right. And even though very often, obviously, having more competition in the marketplace tends to validate what it is you're working on because mm-hmm. clearly if they can actually sell the product service, there is a, mark, a ready market there. Exactly. What, what I see a lot of startups do is underestimate the amount of competition that there is out there. That's a mm-hmm. big difference, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A good amount of healthy competition validates what you're doing. An overwhelming amount of competition because what happens, if you can start a business instantly at almost no cost, what you're seeing is a lot of vanity businesses being created right. that don't really address a bona fide problem in the marketplace and you're not really providing a solution. You're actually creating the problem while creating the solution at the same time. <laughs> so it sounds like, you know, you're talking about barrier to entry, right? And what's your, your kind of moat that's th- that, or your, your, what's your value prop that sticks, uh, that keeps you, you know, ahead of, of the competition out there. So if you have something that's, you know, a lot more valuable, you know, five, ten times better, or something that's a lot more difficult to replicate, then I think it makes more sense, right? Without a doubt, I think the mode, that, yeah. you know, clearly for the for the right, assuming there is the right product market fit, is clearly timing and time mm-hmm. to market, right? Don't right. come to us mm-hmm. and say, look, we want to file some patents for the next three or four years because I've already <laughs> tuned, I've already tuned out, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so we're, we're looking at having a direct measurable impact as an accelerator. We have two components inside of Unicorn. We have the early incubation stage, which right. is heavily revolves around legal structures, accounting, proper workflow, and really teaching the entrepreneur how to work efficiently. And then assuming everything checks out, you graduate from that stage. The acceleration part is handled internally as well. And it's very, very aggressive. Typically, you incubate for three, maximum six months. Uh, mm-hmm. ideally three, 
And then you have at least a beta version of your product, an MVP that's ready to go to market. And the right. idea is to validate that as quickly as possible, see if you can get traction. And usually what I tell, you know, especially service-based businesses, and I know you guys are SaaS fans, so I'm going to like hammer that in specifically. <laughs> what we typically try to do, you know, and it's not specifically, you know, uh, towards SaaS founders right now, but if you're launching a product or service prior to allocating a lot of resources, internally what we do is we take the concept of what we're looking to build and we're trying to pre-sell it to clients so that if the value proposition is really that strong, you should have at least some clients, some people are willing to take a crap shot at that and say, you know what? This is so exciting. This product is really what we need. We're actually willing to pre-purchase it in the hopes mm. that you will bring it to market. Right. And that really gives you solid validation before you actually go out there and really spend a lot of time, effort and resources towards building that product or service. Makes, makes perfect sense. Um, and w in your opinion, what do you think are some of the best places, countries or jurisdictions for a startup to launch? Obviously, maybe you're biased towards being in France and uh, where Highly you are. Highly biased. Yeah, yeah. Uh, highly high bias, but it, it, it's an intellectual bias and an emotional bias at the same time. Uh, so I'd say, I, I, first of all, I've worked in at least 30 different countries uh, in the last 28 years. Uh, okay. Clearly, what drove me early on in my career was the US. I worked in Latin America, in Central America, in other parts of Europe. And everybody has their opinion on that. So clearly, I'm going to be subjective about what I'm going to be saying. Uh, <laughs> We as a team did a lot of research in 2017 prior to deciding on France. And we had four or five candidate countries in which we wanted to settle. And we ended up settling on France after Emmanuel Macron became president of France and radically changed the landscape for startups, coined the term, English term for France, the startup nation, created the French tech label, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would challenge anyone today into a debate as to which country has done the most and is offering the most for early stage startups. And I would challenge them and probably come out a win. I'm a former fighter, so either way I'm gonna win. But in this <laughs> case <laughs> What were the four but, countries before I before I say that? What were the four or five countries that were on your list? So in, in Europe, you definitely need to look at Estonia. Mm -hmm. Right, very proactive. Everything is decentralized. You can create a company within forty-five minutes, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're looking to raise money, there's mm -hmm. always going to be oh, former Yugoslavia for those of us who are old enough, right? Mm -hmm. Question mark, right? Small country. If you're building something for the Estonian market, can you really scale it across Europe first, and then the rest of the world? Right. Uh, that's that's an issue. Uh, I would say even a small country like Macedonia, two million people. Right, very proactive, uh, highly skilled engineers coming out of top engineering schools at a, at a low cost, which is important. Yeah. But all things considered, France is a sizable market, 67, mm -hmm. 68 million people. Uh, yeah. It is the second largest economy in the EU zone. It yeah. has tremendous startup incentives. Uh, if you look up French tech investor visa, you have uh, talent passport visas. For example, it took me two weeks to get my Panamanian engineers to France, quote unquote, import them. The day they came, the next day the kids were in school. They were still jet lagged. That they came with five kids, three and two. 
right? So a lot of the barriers of entry, because if I mention any, anyone to the US right now or in Canada, you have to go to France because they're all oh, the French bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera, right? Hmm. To a certain extent, that is still true. Nowhere near as much as it used to be. And what we do internally at Unicorn, we take care of it all. So you don't have to worry about it. We hand you the nice. keys. Here's your desk. Get to work. Mm. Very nice. So Estonia, France, what were the other two? I don't think you mentioned them. In, your, in Europe or around the world? Wherever. Where, where, where were the ones you were considering? In, in, in Asia, Singapore. Asia, Singapore. Okay. De- definitely high rated. I mean, mm. I think US, Canada, neck to neck. If I had a choice today, I would probably go to Canada, to your place versus the US. Nice. Right. For a number of reasons, including immigration and whatnot. Okay. Uh, have you considered Israel, Tel Aviv? Was that on your list or no? No, I've, a lot of clients there, a lot of partners there. Definitely nice. an exciting place as well. Uh, yeah. I, I think for G, I would stay away for geopolitical reasons. Nice. Yeah, fair enough. And what, what, what do you, what you so you mentioned, um, you know, that, that time period between where you were considering France, but this was in 2017. Um, how does that change now? How do you think that landscape will look like in the near future? So interesting, obviously, what we've seen with COVID is, at least for us, it's, it's truly accelerated the pace because keep in mind that we're in a small rural area. We are in a town, Salah, S-A-R-L-A-T, for those of you who want to look it up, 9,000 people in the winter, 2 million tourists a year. So it's a very unique place, medieval mm-hmm. town uh, that we cho- chose by design. Uh, to, to set up the first incubator in a rural area. We're about to become the largest rural incubator in the world of its kind. And so we made that decision before COVID because we saw some early trends and market research indicated at that time that roughly 12% of startup founders were looking to relocate away from big cities into right. smaller towns like this one. Okay, exactly. Us Low, being lower cost of living. Yeah. Correct. Lower cost of living, 50 times less rent cost than in London on a, on a mm. scale. If you're, if you're a startup entrepreneur and you're raising money, that's probably a, should be a concern of yours. Uh, easy access to great engineering talent, beautiful universities in Bordeaux and Toulouse. You can look them up online. Some of the best you know, universities in the tech space are in France. Uh, what else? Um, oh, the fact that we are rural and COVID. Right. Mm. As soon as COVID hit, our lead flow literally tripled, then quintupled. Now we're getting 50 or 70 requests a day from people in London, in New York, in Madrid, which is not too far away from where we are in the south of France, other cities in France. I'm sick and tired of being in Paris. I'm sick and tired of being in London. Right. I don't know. I can't breathe anymore. You hear it all. And so COVID accelerated that pace in our favor towards a more rural area, and it's a pristine rural area, right? In a 25 mile radius, we have a thousand and one medieval castles. You got rivers, you got uh, water rafting, you got rock climbing, you know, mountain biking, mm-hmm. you name it. So if you want to work hard in the morning and go do your thing in the afternoon or vice versa, you know, this is your place. I love the sales pitch, guys. If you're, if you guys are seriously considering a place, I think uh, Dom has you sold today. Um, so you, you guys are obviously studying the market, um, seeing what's trending, what's working, um, and what is you know places to avoid. What are some markets you'd avoid or not look at right now in, in the tech space, and and why? If you can share that. You know, I'm not shutting off any market in particular, but what I do shy away from are the crystal ball types of crapshoots where people are trying to predict a future trend. And if we, if economists are a measure 
uh, any measure, you know they're all failing at the end of the year, right? So right. you wrote, you can write down in December, every economist in the world will predict what's going to happen the next year. They all have one thing in common, they're absolutely wrong by the end of the following year. So mm-hmm. basically what, I, what we're trying to avoid is we're trying to be, trying to avoid to be trend, from being trend chasers. Mm-hmm. And we're actually doing the opposite. We're trying to focus, hard focus on what is not going to change and how that can be improved, right? So we're going to wake up tomorrow morning. We're going to eat more so more than likely. We're going to be clothed. We want to be entertained, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But how are these experiences being brought to these people? And what technologies can we use, AR, VR being one example right now, to bring, them, bring it to them cheaper, more efficiently, in a more engaging way? rather than figuring out what people's taste buds are going to look like five years from now, right? Right. So focus on what is not changing versus what is changing because we don't have a crystal ball. And you're going to be much more accurate in your quote-unquote prediction by catering Mm -hmm. to those core human needs that were around 100 years ago and will be around 100 years from today. Okay. So ignoring, you know, trends right now, are there still, you know, and then we're talking, you know, things that are going to be here in a hundred years. I love that kind of thinking. Um, specifically to that, what are markets you would say you're excited and bullish on, you know? I think the most, I'm the most bullish on the merge of 5G, AI, and ARVR, mm-hmm. which we're still talking about as different technologies today that by, I think within 18 to 24 months, these three technologies are going to be merging and become one. Mm-hmm. And we'll use new terms like XR, extended reality, or whatever whatever it may be. Right? Mm-hmm. And I believe those will have a significant, profound, and lasting impact on everything that we do. Mm-hmm. From early childhood learning to travel experiences. And I think we're very, very close right now from what some people call the singularity. The merger of human biology with technology. Probably right. 10 to 15 years away, 15 worst case scenario. And at that point in time, we have to ask ourselves a lot of ethical and philosophical questions as to whether or not we as human human biology want to be augmented or not. It's happening already as we speak. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to have two classes of individuals. The ones who accept to be augmented. Uh, I don't want to scare anybody away, but, you know, yes, maybe cyborg in some way. And the ones that just radically say, no, I want to stay, quote unquote, human, whatever that means, right? Uh, I just passed the age of 50. So I'm wearing glasses today. Uh, didn't wear them six months from now, six months ago. <laughs> and if you gave me the option between having getting old and decrepit versus staying young and healthy, I'll probably take the latter. Right, mm-hmm. but I can mm-hmm. completely understand that some people want to tune out of that process and follow, you know, the course that we've been following for the last two hundred fifty thousand years. Right. So I think we will see massive, radical changes on every single level as a result of the merger of these three technologies: AI, AR, VR, and five G becoming ubiquitous. Nice, nice, love it. Um, so if we're if somebody is listening in today, they're looking to possibly consider your incubator or accelerate program. So you mentioned, you know, you have those access to some of those those keywords that you rank for on the apps. Uh, you provide the financial structure, the legal structure, obviously a, a, a nice place to possibly live in, in France. Um, what First other services? Okay, that's number one. Sure. <laughs> what, what, what other services do you provide and why should they consider a program like yours? At what point should they consider it? I think if you have a, I mean, it's just, just, dress up the ideal 
client, yeah, right? The yeah, ideal startup. So actually, it's it's. I would take the one that we're just incubating right now that we just brought in, which is a an AI for running. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are roughly 650 million competitive runners in the world mm-hmm. that run anything between the 50 meter dash all the way to ultra marathons and anywhere in between. So large addressable market. Every single runner, competitive runner, has two problems. Number one, they want to increase their performance and right. perform at a higher level. And number two, they're running, in most cases, not optimally, and they're prone to injuries as a result, sometimes career-ending injuries. Mm-hmm. What this AI does, you upload a video of yourself running for 10 to 15 seconds. It analyzes your posture, the position of your head versus your shoulders, your elbows, your knees, ankles, and provides you with immediate corrective measures to improve your running and also reduce your injury, right? That is perfect for us because number one, it is very simple to understand even though the technology is pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. Large addressable market, huge product market fit, way beyond what I imagined because when I spoke to the region in the Southwest and I mentioned to do them the platform, they came back to me and said, look, we're spending and Healthcare is cheap in France, One another selling point, right? But despite mm-hmm. the fact that healthcare is cheap, they're spending $2.7 billion a year, euros a year, on preventable injuries coming by way of running the wrong way, mm-hmm. right? So how can we help? Do you need any grants in order to make this happen? That's how, that's how they came to us, right? Mm-hmm. So that's right in our sweet spot. We can quickly accelerate that concept once it's fully built out. Okay. Because the number of searches both in and outside the app store is in the tens of millions every single month. So you can have a nice, organic, consistent growth play. Uh, and obviously, you know the fit tech space as well as I do and what's going on in terms of M&A activity in that space, right? For sure. The, the data that you accumulate at the same time, uh, the big data that you can, that you can uh, leverage as a result of having tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of runners uploading their videos uh, and their data points. And mm-hmm. finally, last but not least, the leading team, uh, the former Olympians, track athletes, uh, wife is uh, wife is French, uh, husband is Jamaican, which basically means he runs faster than she does. <laughs> nice. So those are yeah, all huge markets, I think, that are you know still a lot of lot of potential to explore in the next couple of years. Um, you know, but despite the product or the, or the industry, talking about the entrepreneurs, what would you say is the ideal profile? What you would say have been effective or let's say you know a, a successful trends across what what you've seen to be success or you know founders or entrepreneurs? I think it, if I had to put my finger on one specific thing over the last twenty eight years, it's mm-hmm. resilience, grit discipline, whatever you want to call it, the ability to understand that failure is not a failure, but a stepping stone to success. And if I look at my own experience, and maybe you guys can make use of that because it sucks failing at anything, right? But I came up very long time ago, over over 20 years ago with my own rule, which I call the rule of 36 over one. Mm-hmm. And here's what it means. When I first went to the US, I was building websites with my team and I was the main sales guy. And it took me 36 phone calls to close one deal, which means I, I had to go through 35 no's, 35 failures to get one success. Right. And yet I sold that company a few years later for seven figures plus, right? Mm. But if I didn't have the persistence, the grit, the discipline to stick through it, 
if I had said, oh my God, I made 20 calls and nobody wants what I have to sell and I gave up, I would have never gotten anywhere, right? Mm. So I think that is really deeply embedded in the entrepreneur DNA. I do also believe that with enough hindsight of looking what the number of people I met, entrepreneurs and investors, that not everyone is cut out to be an entrepreneur. A lot of people should be employees, nothing wrong with that, right? Should be artists, nothing wrong with that. I love art, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's actually yeah. how I started helping artists, starving artists when I was a starving entrepreneur, right? Nice combo right there. Yeah. But I, I do believe that you either have it or you don't. Uh, a lot of it has to do with your upbringing. If you grew up and you had no choice but to hustle, you actually had to work far what you do instead of growing up with a silver spoon. Yeah. That's a major plus, right? If your parents were hard on you when you were a kid, thank them. Thank you, mom mm-hmm. and dad, for being hard on me today because you know you actually made made this possible for me instead of giving me everything that you know that I could have possibly had. I had to fight for it all. So that is probably the core character trait that we're looking for too. You can see that hunger when you actually meet face to face. And, uh, you know, we've built a radar, I guess, uh, psychological radar over time where you can see, look, this person, first first time, first obstacle, he or she is going to throw in the towel. And that's Mm. not a good thing because I don't want to be in the business of running your business. Right. Exactly. You I'm have a babysitter. to. Pr- Not a babysitter either. I'm an incubator, <laughs> right? I want to make sure you su- you survive, but at the same time, once survival is assured, I don't want to babysit you for the next 18 years. Right. Yeah. Good point. Um, you know, before we getting into kind of the rapid fire questions, I want to ask one question. I know you have a, a pretty interesting story. Um, you grew an app which grew from zero to one million in in six months. Can you can you share what was the strategy behind that and and how it worked? Sure. Sure. So actually, the way it happened is uh, one of our uh, developers on his own on his own time developed a football. Right? Let me rephrase: soccer predictions okay. app. <laughs> and he said, "Hey Dom, take a look at what I built here. Uh, you can actually look it up. It's pro. It's called Probet. It's on iOS right now, and it has a web version as well. And he said." Uh, I don't know how I did it. You know, I built something and now I have 1,500 downloads. So I took a look at it. It's like, wow. He said, didn't spend a dime on an acquisition, et cetera. And I see, wow, this thing is not bad. So we spent some time, spent another six, eight weeks fine-tuning it, uh, building better AI in the system. And then we gave it a shot. And we did pure organic SEO, uh, which we do internally. And uh, we went from few thousand downloads uh, to 1.4, 1.5 million across all platforms today. Wow. Uh, roughly on a bad day, a thousand organic downloads on a good day, five to 7,000 in 17 different languages. And that was one of the keys of actually getting these downloads. Yeah. Because we look at the language sets as an additional way of growing organically because we're competing uh, obviously, English being the most competitive language there is, whether you're doing SEO or ESO, every other language that's besides English is less competitive. Right? So we went, we started with English, then we did French, German, and Spanish. And very quickly, we doubled the daily flow of organic downloads just by adding those three languages. And then we consistently added on more and more languages. And now we're doing it in 17 different languages. And then we're ranked either number one or one through five for most of the uh, sports betting, sports prediction keywords, which by the way, are also some of the most competitive you can find. So you focused on one single strategy, SEO, organic, inside the app. 
And then rather than, you know, going through paid or other kind of channels and, you know, once you kind of got a little bit of traction, you just went deeper and deeper and deeper. And then, you know, went to the languages and can continue to optimize on that. So that, I think that's interesting. So that's uh, actually how we, on, how we always work on the, on, on the customer acquisition side. We nice. try to figure out what works on a one-off basis on a granular level mm-hmm. uh, and what doesn't work. It goes back to failures and successes. Right. It, the worst thing to do is to not understanding that you're currently failing and to persist through that failure until you ultimately fail big time, right? So by measuring everything, if you're a keyword marketer, for example, or if you're doing Facebook advertising, Google ads, et cetera, et cetera, clearly you know that, right? You want to track your metrics. You want to have your different ad sets, do ABC all the way through Z testing, quickly get rid of the ads that are not performing because they're caught to losing your money. Uh, double, triple up on the ones that are really performing and the outliers really go, you know, head first into those. Very similar concept here where we quickly identify what works versus what doesn't work. And once we find some winners, we just go full steam ahead on those. Nice. So Dom, uh, some, some of these rapid fire questions, you know, you can take as, as long or as short as you want to answer them. Um, you know, obviously you've had a lot of success over the last 28 years. You've seen a lot and you've helped a lot of companies also be successful. What does success mean to you today? Whether that's personally, financially, business, no right answer. Uh, success means first and foremost, not failing <laughs> is what I would say. And success is ultimately, I think, the achievement once you've actually gone through a tremendous amount of failures, pain and blood. Right. Uh, case in point, you know, I have inside of Unicorn seven rugby players that work here. They understand what pain is. For those of you who don't know rugby, think of uh, American football without the pads. Right. So, you know, you have to have that grit. You have to have that mentality. And ultimately, once you succeed, hence the definition of success, you've kind of like taken a deep breath and said, you know what, this was all worth it. But if I hadn't gone through this pain, it probably wouldn't be worth it. Nice. Love it. Dom, what's one advice you wish you had known and would tell your, your 25-year-old self or someone who's starting their journey in their, their early 20s or mid-20s? Don't believe the first investor pitch you're hearing. <laughs> so if you want me to extrapolate on that. So yeah. when you're, you know, I think you're still seeing it today. If you have a great idea, et cetera, and you don't know, understand the equity markets, you know, you don't understand your cap structures, your evaluations, et cetera. Uh, be very, very careful. Get uh, adult advice and don't take the first deal. Uh, in my case, I just diluted myself into oblivion. Uh, I ended up doing all the work. I gave away 75% equity in my deal uh, for people who didn't provide any value, tangible value. And we sold the company and they basically wrote them a huge check for doing nothing. Wow. Congratulations to them, right? Good <laughs> negotiating, but don't fall for it. Mm. Nice. Um, who or what would you say are three resources, whether it's books and or people, could be mentors or people you follow, who you would say have been instrumental to your success over the last few years? Ooh, that's an easy one. Uh, yeah. So mentor, my maternal grandmother, who was a World War II resistant, who told me, taught me about uh, grit, resilience, and uh, et cetera, right? Instilled a very, very strong DNA discipline inside me, which I still feel today, even though she's passed for 30 years. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, early influence uh, French writer Jules Verne, Jules Verne for the Americans listening in or the English speakers listening in, who obviously was the real Nostrad- Nostradamus in this world because uh, if you read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Voyage to the Moon, etc., etc., he basically... Uh, was able to encapsulate technology at an early stage, 150 years before it actually existed. He basically mm-hmm. described the, the Tesla rockets, you know, that we have today, the submarines, nanotechnology by describing a device and actually drawing it up the way he could envision it, how you actually would cure disease inside your body 150 years ago, right? For me, that was fantastic vision. And when you actually see that that vision came, came through, you know, post-mortem, you would have to realize you know, how can I apply that to what I'm doing today? You know, how can I, how can I, when nobody has a crystal ball, it almost looks like he had one, right? Mm. So I think those are some very powerful things. And then in terms of uh, books, there's one book that ranks for me top three, top five that I've ever read in my life. And it's called The Brain That Changes Itself. It was written by a famous neuroscientist, uh, neuropsychiatrist called Norman Deutsch, D-O-I-D-G-E. Mm-hmm. I would recommend everybody reads that book. The reason why it impacted me first and foremost is number one, as in any great book, sometimes you see pages, paragraphs, chapters that you think were written just for you. It's like literally he's talking to me mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> but basically what we've believed to be true uh, for the last few centuries was that the human brain would be stale, not progress, being frozen once you reach an adult life. And he's proven mm-hmm. exactly the opposite. Right? You can rewire your brain no matter how, you, how old you are. So some examples that he takes is like typically if you go in a car accident and the right brain, the right side of the brain is injured, you're losing control of the left part of your body and vice versa. Right. Right. And what he's been able to prove in his practice is that that's absolutely false, that you can actually retrain the brain to take over the ghost limb, that part that goes numb, right? Ghost limb is an exact, a perfect example. You have war, uh, war injuries, for example, where a soldier may lose a leg or an arm, but they still feel the pain in a limb that no longer exists, right? right? Yeah, so yeah. to show you the power of the brain, you can actually turn that off via proper brain exercises, right? At one point mm-hmm. in time, that's how freaky this story is, I go, my dad was in the hospital in France and I actually look for where he is at the third level and actually see one of the references from that book that I had many, read many years before. I'm like, why does this name sound familiar to me? And I kept seeing, visiting my dad, kept, kept thinking, and while I'm visiting my dad, it pops to my mind. Oh my God, this is one of the, the doctors who is actually you know, using this treatment therapies that was described in the book. And I just mm-hmm. went in. He was booked six months ahead of time and I was so enthusiastic about everything that he finally came out and says, come back and see me tomorrow. And what I went through at that point in time, I cannot even describe. It's like I was sitting with electrodes on my head and this person, this doctor, was telling me my life story. What? The first question I thought, I thought, I thought it was a joke. I thought, you, you've spoken to my wife, right? You must have spoken <laughs> to someone. He said, I don't know. I have no idea who your wife is. But all I have to do is look at your brain. See this little part right here. You're not really a romantic, Dom. You know, this is, this is your romanticism right here. And I'm looking at my brain. It's like, <laughs> it's like the size of a pea, right? He goes, that's the bad news. The good news is you can make it as large as you want. So I went through tremendous pain of actually trying to improve myself in, in areas where I was very, very weak. Mm. And the easiest way to describe it is like having not worked out for five years and all of a sudden trying to run a marathon. 
Like right. the first time I did it, I was absolutely exhausted after two minutes. And then it became five, 10, 15. It's like extreme meditation where you're right. like a, trying to work out a muscle. In this case, it's an area of your brain that, not, that has never been worked out before. So the brain that changes itself definitely changed me. Wow. That sounds like a fantastic book. I'll have to definitely check that out. Uh, and we'll add that link to our show notes as well for, for our listeners to check out. Um, Dom, thank you so much for, for jumping on. What, what are your future plans for Unicorn Incubator? And where can our audience get in touch with you, learn more about you and your program? So future plans for us over the next 18 months is to bring in 80, upwards of 80 startups that meet our criteria. We just uh, took over 2,500 square meters of space, so roughly 26,000, 20, uh, 26, 27,000 square feet, in addition to the place I'm talking to you from. Nice. Uh, you can find out more about us on unicorninkubator.com. That's unicorn with a Q. My last name in German means unicorn as well, Einhorn. Uh, I'm the only Dom Einhorn on LinkedIn, D-O-M, Einhorn, E-I-N-H-O-R-N. And also we're launching a major event called the Startup Super Cup in October. Okay. October 1, 2, 3, uh, startupsupercup.com. It will basically assemble... 800 to 900 angel investors, 80 plus funds, 100 to 150 startups pitching for a grand prize with massive media coverage from France, Western Europe, UK, US, Canada. We have uh, very large commitments from the, from the media to cover the event. Very cool. Maybe look forward to, to joining that one on our side as well. I'll send you, you a VIP invite. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dom. Appreciate you. Thanks, Gail. Pleasure. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. Anyway. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.